Section 4 of Hard Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joseph Ugaretz. Hard Times by Charles Dickens. Section 4, Chapters 7 and 8. Chapter 7 Mrs. Sparsett. Mr. Bounderby being a bachelor, an elderly lady presided over his establishment, in consideration of a certain annual stipend. Mrs. Sparsett was this lady's name, and she was a prominent figure in attendance on Mr. Bounderby's car, as it rolled along in triumph with the bully of humility inside. For Mrs. Sparsett had not only seen different days, but was highly connected. She had a great aunt living in these very times, called Lady Scadgers. Mr. Sparsett, deceased, of whom she was the relict, had been by the mother's side what Mrs. Sparsett still called a powler. Strangers of limited information and dull apprehension were sometimes observed not to know what a powler was, and even to appear uncertain whether it might be a business, or a political party, or a profession of faith. The better class of minds, however, did not need to be informed that the powlers were an ancient stock who could trace themselves so exceedingly far back that it was not surprising if they sometimes lost themselves, which they had rather frequently done, as respected horse-flesh, blind-hooky, Hebrew monetary transactions, and the insolvent debtors' court. The late Mr. Sparsett, being by the mother's side a powler, married this lady, being by the father's side a scadgers. Lady Scadgers, an immensely fat old woman with an inordinate appetite for butcher's meat and a mysterious leg which had now refused to get out of bed for fourteen years, contrived the marriage, at a period when Sparsett was just of age and chiefly noticeable for a slender body, weakly supported on two long slim props, and surmounted by no head worth mentioning. He inherited a fair fortune from his uncle, but owed it all before he came into it, and spent it twice over immediately afterwards. Thus, when he died at twenty-four, the scene of his decease, Calais, and the cause, Brandy, he did not leave his widow, from whom he had been separated soon after the honeymoon, in affluent circumstances. That bereaved lady, fifteen years older than he, fell presently at deadly feud with her only relative, Lady Scadgers, and, partly to spite her ladyship, and partly to maintain herself, went out at a salary. And here she was now, in her elderly days, with the Coriolanian style of nose and the dense black eyebrows which had captivated Sparsett, making Mr. Bounderby's tea as he took his breakfast. If Bounderby had been a conqueror, and Mrs. Sparsett a captive princess whom he took about as a feature in his state processions, he could not have made a greater flourish with her than he habitually did. Just as it belonged to his boastfulness to depreciate his own extraction, so it belonged to it to exalt Mrs. Sparsett's. In the measure that he would not allow his own youth to have been attended by a single favourable circumstance, he brightened Mrs. Sparsett's juvenile career with every possible advantage, and showered wagon-loads of early roses all over that lady's path. "'And yet, sir,' he would say, "'how does it turn out, after all? Why, here she is at a hundred a year.' I give her a hundred, which she is pleased to term handsome, keeping the house of Josiah Bounderby of Coketown. Nay, he made this foil of his so very widely known that third parties took it up, and handled it on some occasions with considerable briskness. It was one of the most exasperating attributes of Bounderby that he not only sang his own praises, but stimulated other men to sing them. 
there was a moral infection of claptrap in him. Strangers, modest enough elsewhere, started up at dinners in Coketown and boasted in quite a rampant way of Bounderby. They made him out to be the Royal Arms, the Union Jack, Magna Carta, John Bull, habeas corpus, the Bill of Rights, an Englishman's house as his castle, church and state, and God save the Queen all put together. And as often, and it was very often, as an orator of this kind brought into his peroration, Princes and lords may flourish or may fade, a breath can make them as a breath has made. It was for certain, more or less understood among the company, that he had heard of Mrs. Sparsit. "'Mr. Bounderby,' said Mrs. Sparsit, "'you are unusually slow, sir, with your breakfast this morning.' "'Why, ma'am,' he returned, "'I am thinking about Tom Gradgrind's whim.' Tom Gradgrind, for a bluff, independent manner of speaking, as if somebody were always endeavouring to bribe him with immense sums to say Thomas, and he wouldn't. Tom Gradgrind's whim, ma'am, of bringing up the tumbling girl. The girl is now waiting to know, said Mrs. Sparsett, whether she is to go straight to the school or up to the lodge. She must wait, ma'am, answered Bounderby, till I know myself. We shall have Tom Gradgrind down here presently, I suppose. If he should wish her to remain here a day or two longer, of course she can, ma'am. "'Of course she can, if you wish it, Mr. Bounderby.' "'I told him I should give her a shake down here last night, "'in order that he might sleep on it "'before he decided to let her have any association with Louisa.' "'Indeed, Mr. Bounderby, very thoughtful of you.' "'Mrs. Sparsett's Coriolanian nose underwent a slight expansion of the nostrils, "'and her black eyebrows contracted as she took a sip of tea. "'It's tolerably clear to me,' said Bounderby, "'that the little puss can get small good out of such companionship.' "'Are you speaking of young Miss Gradgrind, Mr. Bounderby?' "'Yes, ma'am, I'm speaking of Louisa.' Uh, "'Your observation being limited to little puss,' said Miss Sparsett, "'and there being two little girls in question, I, "'I did not know which might be indicated by that expression. "'Louisa,' repeated Mr. Bounderby. "'Louisa, Louisa!' "'You are quite another father to Louisa, sir.' Mrs. Sparsett took a little more tea, and, as she bent her again contracted eyebrows over her steaming cup, rather looked as if her classical countenance were invoking the infernal gods. "'If you had said I was another father to Tom—young Tom, I mean, not my friend Tom Gradgrind—you might have been nearer the mark. I am going to take young Tom into my office, going to have him under my wing, ma'am.' "'Indeed? Uh, rather young for that, is he not, sir?' Mrs. Sparsett's sir, in addressing Mr. Bounderby, was a word of ceremony, rather extracting consideration for herself in the use than honouring him. "'I'm not going to take him at once. He is to finish his educational cramming before then,' said Bounderby. "'By the Lord Harry, he'll have enough of it, first and last. He'd open his eyes, that boy would, if he knew how empty of learning my young maw was at his time of life. Which, by the by, he probably did know, for he had heard of it often enough.' "'But it's extraordinary the difficulty I have on scores of such subjects "'in speaking to anyone on equal terms. "'Here, for example, I've been speaking to you this morning about tumblers. "'Why, what do you know about tumblers? "'At the time when, to have been a tumbler in the mud of the streets "'would have been a godsend to me, a prize in the lottery to me. "'You were at the Italian opera. "'You were coming out of the Italian opera, ma'am, "'in white satin and jewels, a, a blaze of splendor, "'when I hadn't a penny to buy a link to light you. "'I certainly, sir,' returned Mrs. Sparsett, with a dignity serenely mournful, "'was familiar with the Italian opera at a very early age. 
"'Egad, ma'am, so was I,' said Pounderby. "'With the wrong side of it. "'A hard bed the pavement of its arcade used to make, I assure you. "'People like you, ma'am, accustomed from infancy to lie on down feathers, "'have no idea how hard a paving-stone is without trying it. "'No, no, it's of no use my talking to you about tumblers. "'I should speak of foreign dancers, and the West End of London, "'and Mayfair, and lords and ladies and honourables.' "'I trust, sir,' rejoined Mrs. Sparsett, with decent resignation, "'it is not necessary that you should do anything of that kind. "'I, I hope I have learnt how to accommodate myself to, to the changes of life. "'If I have acquired an interest in hearing of your instructive experiences, "'and can scarcely hear enough of them, "'I claim no merit for that, since I believe it is a general sentiment.' "'Well, ma'am,' said her patron, Perhaps some people may be pleased to say that they do like to hear, in his own unpolished way, what Josiah Bounderby of Coketown has gone through, but you must confess that you were born in the lap of luxury yourself. Come, ma'am, you know you were born in the lap of luxury. I do not, sir, returned Mrs. Sparsett with a shake of her head. Deny it. Mr. Bounderby was obliged to get up from table and, and stand with his back to the fire, looking at her. She was such an enhancement of his position. "'And you were in crack society, devilish high society,' he said, warming his legs. "'It is true, sir,' returned Mrs. Sparsett, with an affectation of humility the very opposite of his, and therefore in no danger of jostling it. "'You were in the tip-top fashion, and all the rest of it,' said Mr. Bounderby. "'Yes, sir,' returned Mrs. Sparsett, with a kind of social widowhood upon her. "'It is unquestionably true.' Mr. Bounderby, bending himself at the knees, literally embraced his legs in his great satisfaction, and laughed aloud. Mr. and Miss Gradgrind being then announced, he received the former with a shake of the hand, and the latter with a kiss. "'Can Jupe be sent here, Bounderby?' asked Mr. Gradgrind. "'Certainly. So Jupe was sent there. On coming in, she curtsied to Mr. Bounderby, and to his friend Tom Gradgrind, and also to Louisa, but in her confusion unluckily omitted Mrs. Sparsett. Observing this, the blusterous Bounderby had the following remarks to make. Now, I tell you what, my girl, the name of that lady by the teapot is Mrs. Sparsett. That lady acts as mistress of this house, and she is a highly connected lady. Consequently, if ever you come again into any room in this house, you will make a short stay in it, if you don't behave towards that lady in your most respectful manner. Now, I don't care a button what you do to me, because I don't affect to be anybody. So, far from having high connections, I have no connections at all, and I come of the scum of the earth. But towards that lady, I do care what you do, and you shall do what is deferential and respectful, or you shall not come here. I hope, Bounderby, said Mr. Gradgrind in a conciliatory voice, that this was merely an oversight. My friend Tom Gradgrind suggests, Mrs. Sparsett, said Bounderby, that this was merely an oversight. Very likely. However, as you are aware, ma'am, I don't allow of even oversights towards you. You are very good indeed, sir, returned Mrs. Sparsett, shaking her head with her state humility. It is not worth speaking of. Sissy, who all this time had been faintly excusing herself with tears in her eyes, was now waved over by the master of the house to Mr. Gradgrind. She stood looking intently at him, and Louisa stood coldly by, with her eyes upon the ground, while he proceeded thus. "'Jupe, I have made up my mind to take you into my house, and when you are not in attendance at the school, to employ you about Mrs. Gradgrind, who is rather an invalid. 
I have explained to Miss Louisa, the, this is Miss Louisa, the miserable but natural end of your late career, and you are to expressly understand that the whole of that subject matter is past. It is not to be referred to any more. From this time you begin your history. You are, at present, ignorant, I know. Yes, sir, very, she answered, curtsying. I shall have the satisfaction of causing you to be strictly educated, and you will be a living proof to all who come into communication with you of the advantages of the training you will receive. You will be reclaimed and formed. You have been in the habit now of reading to your father, and, and those, those people I found you among, I dare say, said Mr. Gradgrind, beckoning her nearer to him before he said so, and, and dropping his voice. Only to father and Merrylegs, sir, at, at least I mean to father, when Merrylegs was always there. Never mind Merrylegs, Jupe said Mr. Gradgrind, with a passing frown. I don't ask about him. I, I understand you to have been in the habit of reading to your father. Oh, yes, sir, the, thousands of times. They were the happiest. Oh, of, of all the happy times we had together, sir. It was only now, when her sorrow broke out, that Louisa looked at her. And what, asked Mr. Gradgrind, in a still lower voice, did you read to your father, Jupe? About the fairies, sir, and the dwarf, and the hunchback, and the genies, she sobbed out, and about— Hush! said Mr. Gradgrind. That is enough. Never breathe a word of such destructive nonsense any more. Bounderby, this is a case for rigid training, and I shall observe it with interest. Well, returned Mr. Bounderby, I have given you my opinion already, and I shouldn't do as you do. But very well, very well, since you are bent upon it, very well. So Mr. Gradgrind and his daughter took Cecilia Jupe off with them to Stone Lodge and on the way Louisa never spoke one word, good or bad, and Mr. Bounderby went about his daily pursuits, and Mrs. Sparsett got behind her eyebrows and meditated in the gloom of that retreat all the evening. End of chapter 7 Chapter 8 Never Wonder Let us strike the keynote again before pursuing the tune. When she was half a dozen years younger, Louisa had been overheard to begin a conversation with her brother one day by saying, Tom, I wonder, upon which Mr. Gradgrind, who was the person overhearing, stepped forth into the light and said, Louisa, never wonder. Herein lay the spring of the mechanical art and mystery of educating the reason without stooping to the cultivation of the sentiments and affections. Never wonder. By means of addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division, settle everything somehow, and never wonder. Bring to me, Machokum child, young yonder baby just able to walk, and I will engage that it shall never wonder. Now, besides very many babies just able to walk, there happened to be in Coketown a considerable population of babies who had been walking against time towards the infinite world twenty, thirty, forty, fifty years and more. These portentous infants, being alarming creatures to stalk about in any human society, the eighteen denominations incessantly scratched one another's faces and pulled one another's hair by way of agreeing on the steps to be taken for their improvement, which they never did. A surprising circumstance when the happy adaptation of the means to the end is considered. Still, although they differed in every other particular, conceivable and inconceivable, especially inconceivable, they were pretty well united on the point that these unlucky infants were never to wonder. Body number one said they must take everything on trust. Body number two said they must take everything on political economy. 
Body number three wrote leaden little books for them, showing how the good grown-up baby invariably got to the savings bank, and the bad grown-up baby invariably got transported. Body number four, under dreary pretenses of being droll, when it was very melancholy indeed, made the shallowest pretenses of concealing pitfalls of knowledge, into which it was the duty of these babies to be smuggled and inveigled. But all the bodies agreed that they were never to wonder. There was a library in Coketown to which general access was easy. Mr. Gradgrind greatly tormented his mind about what the people read in this library, a, a point whereon little rivers of tabular statements periodically flowed into the howling ocean of tabular statements, which no diver ever got to any depth in, and came up sane. It was a disheartening circumstance, but a melancholy fact, that even these readers persisted in wondering. They wondered about human nature, human passions, human hopes and fears, the struggles, triumphs and defeats, the, the cares and joys and sorrows, the lives and deaths of common men and women. They sometimes, after fifteen hours' work, sat down to read mere fables about men and women, more or less like themselves, and about children, more or less like their own. They took Defoe to their bosoms, instead of Euclid, and seemed to be on the whole more comforted by Goldsmith than by Cocker. Mr. Gradgrind was forever working, in print and in out of print, at this eccentric sum, and he never could make out how it yielded this unaccountable product. "'I am sick of my life, Lou. I hate it altogether, and I hate everybody except you,' said the unnatural young Thomas Gradgrind, in the hair-cutting chamber at twilight. "'You don't hate Sissy, Tom.' "'I hate to be obliged to call her Jupe, and she hates me,' said Tom moodily. "'No, she does not, Tom, I'm sure.' "'She must,' said Tom. "'She must just hate and detest the whole set out of us. "'They'll bother her head off, I think, before they have done with her. "'Already she's getting as pale as wax and as heavy as—as as I am.' "'Young Thomas expressed these sentiments sitting astride of a chair before the fire, "'with his arms on the back and his sulky face on his arms. "'His sister sat in the darker corner by the fireside, now looking at him, now looking at the bright sparks as they dropped upon the hearth. "'As to me,' said Tom, tumbling his hair all manner of ways with his sulky hands, "'I am a donkey, that's what I am. I am as obstinate as one, I am more stupid than one, I get as much pleasure as one, and I should like to kick like one.' "'Not me, I hope, Tom.' "'No, Lou, I wouldn't hurt you. I made an exception of you at first. I, I don't know what this jolly old jaundiced jail—' Tom had paused to find a sufficiently complimentary and expressive name for the parental roof, and seemed to relieve his mind for a moment by the strong alliteration of this one, would be without you. "'Indeed, Tom, do you, do you really and truly say so?' "'Why, of course I do. What's the use of talking about it?' returned Tom, chafing his face on his coat-sleeve as if to mortify his flesh and have it in unison with his spirit. "'Because, Tom,' said his sister, after silently watching the sparks a while, as I get older and, and nearer growing up, I often sit wondering here, and think how unfortunate it is for me that I can't reconcile you to home better than I am able to do. I don't know what other girls know. I, I can't play to you or sing to you. I, I can't talk to you so as to lighten your mind, for I never see any amusing sights or read any amusing books that it would be a pleasure or a relief to you to talk about when you are tired. Well, no more do I. I'm as bad as you in that respect, and I'm a mule, too, which you're not. If father was determined to make me either a prig or a mule, and I'm not a prig, 
Why, it stands to reason. I must be a mule. And so I am, said Tom, desperately. It's a great pity, said Louisa, after another pause, and speaking thoughtfully out of her dark corner. It's a great pity, Tom. It's very unfortunate for both of us. Oh, you, said Tom, you, you're a girl, Lou, and a girl comes out of it better than a boy does. I don't miss anything in you. You're the only pleasure I have. You can brighten even this place, and you can always lead me as you like. You are a dear brother, Tom, and while you think I can do such things, I, I don't so much mind knowing better, though I do know better, Tom, and am very sorry for it. She came and kissed him, and went back into her corner again. I wish I could collect all the facts we hear so much about, said Tom, spitefully setting his teeth, and all the figures, and all the people who found them out, and I wish I could put a thousand barrels of gunpowder under them, and, and blow them all up together. However, when I go to live with old Bounderby, I'll have my revenge. Your revenge, Tom? I mean, I'll enjoy myself a little, and go about and see something, and hear something. I'll, I'll recompense myself for the way in which I've been brought up. But don't disappoint yourself beforehand, Tom. Mr. Bounderby thinks as father thinks, and is a great deal rougher, and not half so kind. Oh, said Tom, laughing, I don't mind that. I shall very well know how to manage and smooth old Bounderby. Their shadows were defined upon the wall, but those of the high presses in the room were all blended together on the wall and on the ceiling, as if the brother and sister were overhung by a dark cavern, or a a fanciful imagination, if such treason could have been there, might have made it out to be the shadow of their subject, and of its lowering association with their future. "'What is your great mode of smoothing and managing, Tom? Is it a secret?' "'Oh,' said Tom, "'if it is a secret, it's not far off. It's, it's you. You are his little pet. You are his favorite. He'll do anything for you. When he says to me what I don't like, I shall say to him— my sister Lou will be hurt and disappointed, Mr. Bounderby. She always used to tell me that she was sure you would be easier with me than this. That'll bring him about, or nothing will. After waiting for some answering remark and getting none, Tom wearily relapsed into the present time, and twined himself yawning round and about the rails of his chair, and rumpled his head more and more until he suddenly looked up and asked, Have you gone to sleep, Lou? No, Tom. I am looking at the fire. You seem to find more to look at in it than I ever could find, said Tom. Another of the advantages, I suppose, of being a girl. Tom, inquired his sister slowly, and in a curious tone, as if she were reading what she asked in the fire, and it was not quite plainly written there, Do you look forward with any satisfaction to this change to Mr. Bounderby's? "'Why, there's one thing to be said of it,' returned Tom, pushing his chair from him and standing up. "'It will be getting away from home.' "'There is one thing to be said of it,' Louisa repeated in her former curious tone. "'It will be getting away from home.' "'Yes.' "'Not but what I shall be very unwilling, both to leave you, Lou, and to leave you here. But I must go, you know, whether I like it or not, and I had better go where I can take with me some advantage of your influence.' than where I should lose it altogether. Don't you see? Yes, Tom. The answer was so long in coming, though there was no indecision in it, that Tom went and leaned on the back of her chair, to contemplate the fire which so engrossed her, from her point of view, and see what he could make of it. 
"'Except that it is a fire,' said Tom. "'It looks to me as stupid and blank as everything else looks. "'What do you see in it? Not a circus?' "'I don't see anything in it, Tom, particularly, "'but since I have been looking at it, "'I have been wondering about you and me grown up.' "'Wondering again,' said Tom. "'I have such unmanageable thoughts,' returned his sister, "'that they will wonder.' "'Then I beg of you, Louisa,' said Mrs. Gradgrind, who had opened the door without being heard, "'to do nothing of that description. "'For goodness' sake, you inconsiderate girl, or or I shall never hear the last of it from your father. "'And, and Thomas, it is really shameful, with, with my poor head continually wearing me out, "'that a boy brought up as you have been, and whose education has cost what yours has, "'should be found encouraging his sister to wonder, "'when he knows his father has expressly said that she is not to do it.' Louisa denied Tom's participation in the offence, but her mother stopped her with the conclusive answer, "'Louisa, don't tell me in my state of health, for unless you had been encouraged, it is morally and physically impossible that you could have done it.' "'I was encouraged by nothing, mother, but by looking at, at, at the red sparks dropping out of the fire and whitening and dying. It made me think, after all, how short my life would be, and, and how little I could hope to, to do in it.' "'Nonsense!' said Mrs. Gradgrind rendered almost energetic. "'Nonsense! Don't stand there and tell me such stuff, Louisa, to my face, when you know very well that if it was ever to reach your father's ears I should never hear the last of it. After all the trouble that has been taken with you, after the lectures you have attended, and the experiments you have seen, after I have heard you myself, when the whole of my right side has been benumbed, going on with your master about combustion and calcination and calafrice, Verification, and I may say every kind of Asian that could drive a poor invalid distracted, to hear you talking in this absurd way about sparks and ashes. I wish, whimpered Mrs. Gradgrind, taking a chair and discharging her strongest point before succumbing under these mere shadows of facts. Yes, I really do wish that I had never had a family, and then you would have known what it was to do without me. End of chapter 8 End of section 4 Recording by Joseph Ugaritz, www.mountebank.org.